When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Brexit Fallout edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the Brexit, because we had an entire Brexit edition the day after Brexit happened, but Frankly, there's just so much Brexiting going on. We need to return to Brexit. And thank you for all of your emails about the various different podcasts you listen to. I know it turns out that top of the list is the Slate Political Gab Fest. Who'd have thunk? So I guess you can all listen to the Slate Political Gab Fest for everything you need to know about Michael Gove and Nigel Farage and... Andrea Leadsom and all of these loathsome British politicians. So we are going to stick to the financial repercussions of Brexit here because they are enormous and not necessarily or entirely confined to the UK. We're going to talk about what's happening to the Italian banks. They are looking shaky. We are going to talk about interest rates all over the world in Switzerland and Japan, which are going even more negative than they were before. But first, oh, wait, hang on a sec. Who's we? <laughs> you never introduced <laughs> us. Felix. Who's we? We is... That's a question these days. The standard... The sta- well, okay, so the first bit of good news is that Jordan Weissman, the Slate Money Box columnist, has been let out of his cage... <laughs> Where like he was he was literally just feet away from the from the Brexit discussion that we had last time round, but was somehow recused himself from participating. Well, last time, yeah, I was I was called upon to do my uh, regular job, which was put words on the internet. But I was I was I feel, I feel, like, I feel that put, I feel like putting your voice into the podcast sphere is at least as valuable and important as putting words on the internet. It's much I, more I, enjoyable. I feel a little superior that. here because I don't have a regular job, so you know. <laughs> So we have Jordan Weissman. We also have the woman without a regular job. That's me. Kathy O'Neill. Hi. But you do have a blog called mathbabe.org. I do. Um, And yeah, Kathy, tell us about um, property funds in the UK. Yeah, so this is actually a direct um, continuation of our conversation without Jordan, which was very sad to not have him, but we did have that. Really wonderful guy. Leo Carey. Yeah, he was great. Leo was great. He used words like phonic. He was so... You know, articulate. I was. I was really okay, guys. He, okay. Had, a, he had a great English accent. <laughs> no, we love you, though, Jordan. This anyway, is, this is the classic we, lineup. Okay, we, we love about... we love Paul Ford. We love Leo <laughs> Carey. We love our guests. However, we, lo- we love our guests. We and, love each other too. Let's continue. And, and Jordan Jordan Weissman is not bad in opinion. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um. So anyway, we talked about the possible repercussions of Brexit on the day after, and one of the things we thought about was finance finance moving out of the city of London, and what would that mean to real estate prices? And guess what? It means a lot to real estate prices. Um, in the last few days, a bunch of different things called commercial property f- mutual funds in the UK, um, which center on basically investing in UK commercial 
property, like stores and buildings, um, have announced that they are closing their gates. They're not letting anyone take out their money. So there's a few of these funds. And basically, as we know, buildings are illiquid assets. And so these funds are traded on the stock market. Uh, and they're mutual funds. And you can you can just say, you look at the price at which the fund closed on any given day and say, I want to buy at that price or sell at that price, you know, bid offer spread notwithstanding. And they have now decided, well, a few of them, like three or four of them at least, have decided, maybe five, have decided that they're not even going to make a market. You, you just can't sell at any price because – What's happened to commercial property is that, you know, as Kathy says, well, Kathy says it's gone down in value. The fact is no one knows what's happened to the value of this commercial property because no deals have got done in the UK since the Brexit vote, literally zero. And I was I was at a conference in London um, last week and there was this sort of show of hands of like, who among you has like, postponed making a major decision which you would otherwise have made because of Brexit and like the entire room all all hands just shot shot up and this is why Britain is going into a recession is because a recession is just when economic activity slows down and economic activity is clearly slowing down because people are just not doing shit for the time being. Yeah, so there's there's sorry, um there's there's like a 25 billion dollar commercial property market in of this type in in the UK and eight of the funds which is which represents more than half the market have officially frozen transactions on their funds. So nobody oh, can take one of them though has done has done something a bit more interesting. Aberdeen, I believe it is, has said, "Yeah, if you want to leave, we'll give you like a super noble price you can leave at." And so if they, you want, they mark down by seventeen percent. By seventeen percent. So if they're like, if you want to take a seventeen percent discount and leave at you know a seventeen percent loss, you can do that. Um, and that way, they're, they're providing liquidity to people who really want to leave and who, to people who are scared. But what you can't do is basically just give yourself liquidity at no cost because the one thing which doesn't exist right now in UK property market is liquidity at no cost. In fact, there's no liquidity basically at all. So uh, for, I, I first have a question and, and then I have a comment. The, the question is, do you think it's fair to basically just look at these funds now going forward is kind of like fear indexes for the state of the, you know, of London's financial market or L- London's financial sector. I mean, is this going to be the kind of thing where you can just look at these funds and say, okay, this is where people think the winds are blowing or? No, I mean, the financial sector is the banks. Yeah. And you can look at the share price of Barclays as a good fear index for London's financial sector. And I think that's a much better index. Uh, frankly, the pound is a much better index than okay. looking to see whether a bunch of commercial real estate funds are open or closed. I think this is basically a sign that we are in a very abnormal time. Okay. Because the last time we can all remember funds closing was, you know, Sock Jan and Bear Stearns in, at the end of 2007, at the beginning of, you know, the credit crisis. And that was a harbinger, as we know, of much, much worse yes. things. And thanks for bringing that up because it, it did happen in 2008, this very same kind of thing. And in fact, D.E. Shaw closed their gates in 2008. But one thing I remember is that near the beginning of that financial crisis, um, a friend of mine at who is a quantitative hedge fund guy, like, estimated what the markets were saying if you pretended like everything was normal and you were just saying, what does the market think that the housing prices are going to be in three years? Because there's various ways to look. 
Um, and it ended up being relatively accurate um, three years later, which is to say, like, you, people, people when, they, when, there's a, when there's something going on in the market, there's like a crisis, a panic, they always say, oh, close the gates. We don't want to sell at fire for fire sales. We don't want to, like, lose too much money. But I think part of it is just that they don't want to admit that things are a lot worth a lot less than they than they want them to be worth. Yeah. So it's in some sense it's just like postponing bad news. Well, it's well, I mean, it, maybe it's postponing bad news, but on the other hand, it makes sense because if a property fund um, has a lot of redemptions, the only way it can meet those redemptions is by selling property. Yes. Um, you can't sell property. Well, you, it's a, it's a, no one benefits if you sell property in a fire sale, and you couldn't anyway. Like there are no sort of fire sale buyers of. London property right well, see, now. Everyone I mean, is waiting to see. That, that's, that's where I would – here's, here's like just devil's advocate on that. There's going to be someone who's going to buy it if the price is low enough, right? People are just not willing to put the price low enough for those buyers, right? That's I, what it see, really is. Now, I feel like that's generally true in the securities market, but in the commercial property market, it's less true. I feel like the commercial property market is – an incredibly illiquid pro- market at the best of times, that even in a booming market where, where everyone is, in, is super bullish, you can't do a fire sale. The f- sales of commercial property take sometimes years to negotiate, even in the best of times. And the, the idea that you, you can just sort of say, oh, well, I'll take a discount and you know, sell more quickly, I don't think it works like that. Well, I'm, I'm not saying it works perfectly like that. I'm just saying that this notion that we literally there are no buyers out there and we can't possibly sell is well, just a little bit of a fabrication. It's, well, it's an empirical fact. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's I mean, certainly it's, true. selling the building does take a lot. I mean, it just it, it does take time. This was you know the industry my dad was in. Like it just takes a long time. It does take a long time, and <laughs> it's, it's, a, like, it's a weird it's market. It's not instantaneous. It, like. It's a slow. It's a sticky market, and the, these funds are definitely like facing a completely unexpected situation where they had twenty percent. Many of them had twenty percent cash on hand, so that meant if like twenty percent of the people wanted their money back, they could just literally hand them cash. But the other eighty percent was actually invested in an actual commercial real estate. So when forty percent of people wanted their money back immediately suddenly they're like screw this we can't actually do this well it's not you don't even need it doesn't even need to be 40 percent. it's just that if it makes sense to have 20 percent cash it doesn't make sense to give all of that cash to exiting unit holders and have no cash left on hand a lot of these commercial property funds i'm sure are looking to use some of that cash to start buying property at lower prices you know but at the time for the time if they give all of their practice cash to, to departing unit holders, they can't do that. I, it makes sense if you are offering an uh, uh, exposure to a fundamentally illiquid asset class that at times like this, you basically suspend the fiction that the investment is liquid. That makes sense to me. Okay. I mean, it's part of the contract. So people sign up for that when they, when they invest in this. I, d- I just want to also come back to the observation I was going to try to make before, um, which is slightly tangential, but I think important, which is that, you know, what we're seeing right now with these property funds and across Britain is a response to, like you said, uncertainty. Like, we really do not know what's going to happen. And to me, that brings back memories, actually, of the U.S. in the early Obama years, where you would hear politicians talking about, oh, President Obama, the Democrats are creating uncertainty by, you know, passing Obamacare or by proposing to raise taxes. And it was always kind of fuzzy. And I think that you're getting actually a really clear illustration of, of, 
first, the fact that uncertainty really can be damaging, but what uncertainty actually looks like, where there's a, a paralyzing fear of we do, no, no, do not know what the whole system is going to be anymore. It's not just a matter of, oh, we might pay a little bit more taxes or we might have to give health care or not. It's we do not know how our economy is based, what the rules of the economy are going to be. And, and this is and this is what Paul Krugman has been, you know, sort of twisting himself up in knots about when it comes to Brexit, is that Krugman is famously scathing about these things called confidence fairies, where he's like, you you know, everyone was talking, as you say, Jordan, during the early Obama years about, oh, well, confidence is going to evaporate and that's going to be bad for the economy. And of course, it didn't work out that way at all. And Krugman was right that these confidence fairies didn't exist really in, in 2009, 2010. Um, and so now he's being a little bit skeptical about the existence of, of confidence fairies in the UK. But I think in the UK, you're absolutely right. They do exist. They are real. We're seeing them in the way that people are trying to get out of their exposure to commercial property and not being able to. We're seeing them in the value of the pound. We're seeing them in the fact that Britain is almost certainly going to have a recession. Um, and we're seeing them, frankly, I mean, we're not going to spend too much time talking about British politics, but we're seeing them in the fact that there is no leadership in Britain anymore. Like, you know, there's no one in charge. And that's just, you know, that can't be good for, for the country. So but Is I, no one in charge better than Boris Johnson in charge, though? <laughs> so, yeah, no, Boris Johnson would have actually, he was the, he was the Brexiteer. He was the yeah. leave guy who was most likely to not leave and that's to just true. leave things in limbo. Can I just make one comment about confidence fairies, though? Because I heard a lot about confidence fairies working in yeah. finance during the crisis. And I always got annoyed by the concept of a confidence fairy because it seemed like people used that that concept as if all we needed was confidence like the underlyings were all good yeah. and we would go back to normal well, and fuck that like this is this is not normal it's going to be different you're absolutely right Kathy this is bad in the UK it's not just a question of confidence although confidence is certainly making things worse this episode of slate money is brought to you by wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So let's pick up this conversation about confidence and fear with my favorite fear index, which is the price of government bonds. When people are afraid, you get this thing called flight to quality. And you want very safe bonds without any credit risk. And you want bonds in very safe currencies, which you think aren't going to implode like the pound just did. So what that means in practice, it turns out, means that you wind up buying bonds in euros and dollars and Japanese yen and Swiss francs, and you pay whatever it takes. Um, and then on top of that, what you do, what you see is a bunch of bond traders who 
We're seeing which way the wind is blowing. And I, I have uh, one of my favorite stats over the of, about the bond market is that if you look at um, government bonds over 2016, if you just invested in government bonds at the beginning of the year, right now you're sitting on a 25% annualized Jesus game. Christ. So bond traders are just making huge amounts of money by going long government bonds, no matter what the yield. Um, and so what where, where we are now is this situation where there are $13 billion of bonds with negative yields. People get very excited about negative yields um, because zero is an important number. Um, but like, it's symptomatic of those two things. Number one is fear, and number two is just momentum trading. Because you can make money on bonds with negative yields sure, just yeah. by, you know, by by buying them expensive and then selling them even more expensive. Yeah, to, so to a greater fool. Can I just? Uh, I just want to go back up one second. Like, why do people put money huh. into bonds when they're afraid? Yeah. And I think. I mean, tell me if you disagree, but I, my theory is that it's because mostly people ride the stock market and and the stock market goes up a lot of the time. But then when stock markets go down, um, the bond market goes up like they're 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 um, anti-correlated. So so if you are like very long in the stock market, you're like, oh, shit, we have no idea what's going to happen in the world economy. The stocks might might really drop down. So I'm going to hedge by getting a bunch of bonds that might go up. Well, in bonds have situations. a guaranteed return of capital like you that's know, the other thing there, there's yeah. there's they, they might have a negative yield so you might get back a little bit less than you invested but ultimately you will get back your money and if you're investing in a foreign currency like swiss francs or japanese yen if that currency goes up then you make money regardless of the negative yield so um so it's inherently a just a much safer place to put your money than the stock market which where you can lose everything I mean, there's another aspect of this, which is if you're, which is a little bit scary, which is that um, if you think there's deflation coming, right? Um, if you think prices are going to fall in a country, you can actually also make money off of a negative yield. Because how, how do you make money? Because defla- I mean, you're in real terms, you're making money because of oh, you can make money in real, real terms. terms. Exactly. Right. So, so, so that's that's the other thing is that you have to d- differentiate between nominal prices and real prices. And economists like Jordan love to talk about real prices, yeah. and they're like, well, if if your <laughs> if your money went down, but the cost of goods went down even more, then really you made money, which is an argument which an only an only an economist could really love. Uh, well, that's a- and, and that's how we look <laughs> at the bond but market. But actually, it's not such a bad argument. Like, <laughs> according to yeah. anybody I've read recently, there's no expectation of a strong inflation at the very least, and there's yeah. some fear, a yeah. real fear of deflation. Yeah, exactly. That's how a lot of a lot of macro people are, are looking at the state of the bond market. That's a sign that people just don't think inflation. I mean, don't think inflation is coming anytime soon. It, deflation could be coming. To give you a sense of, of the timeline we're looking at, the the piece of news that everyone kind of latched onto late last week and this week was that. All of Switzerland's bonds went negative, every all the way out to fifty years. You literally have to pay to lend money Switzerland for fifty years at a time now. Um, that's just, not that's not necessarily like a strong vote in favor of deflation into the Swiss franc. No, but it's and, a combination. And, and can I? Combination can I? I want to make but, one distinction, which I think I've made on this show before, but yeah. it's an important one: is that people elide the two slightly different things. There's, a, yeah. there's an important difference between number one. The yield on the bond, yeah, and number two, how much Switzerland is borrowing, to, how much Switzerland is paying to borrow money, and so yeah. when um, when Jordan is saying that you you you're paying to lend money to. Switzerland, that's not true. What you're paying for is an asset, a bond, which is owned by someone else. And the person you're paying is the previous holder of the bond. 
It is not a loan to Switzerland. But the, the Switzerland loan borrowed the money at whatever interest rate ages ago. Um, the vast majority, for all the 29% of government bonds out there are trading at negative yields, almost none of them were issued at negative That's yields. Yeah, but, but I mean, countries like Germany are issuing bonds uh, at negative yields. I mean, there are countries now well, they're putting issuing them out. notes. They're issuing very short-term debt at negative yields. Um, Switzerland I've, I've issued one five-year bond. Switzerland issued one ten-year bond at negative yield of minus zero point zero five five percent. Japan has issued one, I think, yeah, and so, proper like long-term bond. But what we're talking about is a tiny fraction of all of the negative. Yeah, it's most actually been issued. The, the contracts themselves are the things that are yes. being they're you're bought buy, and sold. You're buying the security because it's gone or it's gone up in price, and so the yield goes down. But I'm just saying these countries literally are actually now issuing these bonds at negative yields, and I'm sure that's going to happen more in the future, given where we are now. And so. and that's true. And the one interesting thing I'll note <clears throat> is that this ten-year bond, which was issued at a yield of minus zero point zero five five percent, still was issued with a one point five percent coupon. It had a nice, like, relatively hefty 1.5% coupon, which you get every year. You just uh, the, the, the price you're paying for that bond up front is so high that even with all of those coupons, you won't get all of your m- money back. Um, so, yeah, that let me, I'm just going to throw in another couple of numbers here because I love numbers. <laughs> and this is, this is a number podcast. Um, one is that there have been 659 rate cuts since the Lehman crisis around the world. Wow. That's a lot of rate cuts. Um, what does that say about the world economy? And this is ultimately the real reason why, why there are so many negative yielding bonds. It's just because we, ha- we live in a world of zero interest rates. And when we're talking about negative, we're just talking about, you know, a third of the bonds at zero interest rates are below zero and two thirds are above zero. And it averages out to slightly above zero. But... It's we're in the zero. So the entire world is becoming Japan. Yeah, this is that's my friend Matt's favorite thing to say. The whole world is turning Japanese. Um, But because Japan started this 20 years before anyone else. It's also but the problem is also it's self-reinforcing when bonds everywhere around the world go to zero. It in turn becomes incredibly hard for a central bank to raise rates because if, say, the Fed wants to raise interest rates, everyone's going to flood into treasury bonds, dollar denominated assets. All of a sudden, the U.S. dollar is going to go up and that's really bad for our economy. It can push us into deflation. So it's. Strong dollar yeah. is in the national interest. Haven't you heard every single Treasury Secretary for the past 50 years? Yeah, but we're not going to get into <laughs> that. Um, well, the, that's actually interesting. I'm the sorry. The other little data point which I want to throw in here is about the high-yield yeah. leveraged loan market. Um, Larry Summers, our favorite person, wrote a column this week about how when his parents had a 4.5% mortgage, um, he would look on that and go, wow, those were some halcyon days we will never see again. Um, the opposite of a safe borrowing mortgage is this thing called leveraged loans, which is super high risk loans with massive credit risk embedded. Um, Uber, our favorite company, just came to market with $1.15 billion of leveraged loans, um, high yield loans. What was the coupon? What was the yield on these things? 5%. Wow. That's that's, that's, what, counts as, that's what counts as high yield these People days. People are so is, desperate. Is 5%. Okay. Plus, people love Uber. It's like its own thing. But not, I mean, it doesn't matter how much you love it. Like, you still only get 5%. Does. <laughs> it's, like, it's like owning a piece of the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, it's like it. owning a seat from Yankee Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On which note? 
Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. We should we should tie all of this up, Jordan, with I think the classic case of like confidence and illiquidity and zero interest rates all sort of conspiring to create what I believe is known as an omni-shambles. <laughs> it's an omni. I wonder what the Italian word for that is. We what is the Italian word for omni-shambles? Um, Listeners, we are relying on you. Yeah, please please let us know if any of you are fluent um, in, in Italian. So, yeah, Italy's banks are, are not looking too good. And it's sort of that their problems kind of combine all the things we've just been discussing. Uh, specifically, people are starting to freak out that about 17% of the loans on their books are have gone bad, are sour. Uh, Italy's banks are, are not in a good place financially. And it's gotten to the point, and that's being kind of reinforced now by Brexit. That's kind of creating more fear, more panic about what's going to happen in Europe and, of course, in Italy, too, everywhere around uh, Europe. Can, what, what's that 17% compared to, like, what we saw in the U.S. during the financial crisis? It's like 10 times or something. I mean, it's, it's, I thought it was more like three times, but it, might, it was oh, a lot, it, lot worse. It's, I think it's 10 times, like, what's normal in the U.S. now. Okay, okay. Those lines. Well, I mean, <clears throat> but to these, these comparisons of dangerous to make— um, Italian banks and Italy in general is much more built on small and medium-sized enterprises which borrow money, much less built on financial markets and, and loan markets and bond markets. Um, the problem with the Italian banks is that they, there is no secondary market for loans. The banks, what they do is they make these loans and then they sit on them to maturity. Any bank in any country at the low point of a credit cycle if you force it to markets, loans to market, is going to look pretty insolvent. And also, it has to be said that the no one is saying that the Italian banks are insolvent. They're saying that their capital ratios are low, but they're still solvent. And indeed, even the worst ones, like you know that ancient bank in Siena, is still profitable. It's still making money. Um, but people are worried because their capital ratios are too low. And historically... The Italian bankers had a, and they have seen this a million times. This is Italy. This is not exactly the world's most stable country. Um, Italian bankers have seen this a million times. What they do is they just sit on their loans until you know they come. The credit cycle comes out the other side, and then and then everything's fine. The problem is that under European banking regulations, they need to start marking all of these bad loans to market, and they need to worry about their solvency, and they need to recapitalize themselves, and. No one has any interest in recapitalizing them. Yeah, so Italy's uh, very good-looking prime minister, Matteo Renzi, uh, essentially wanted to give them a bailout, wanted to give them a approximately, I believe, 40 billion euro influx of capital. Um, And Europe looked at this and said no, that this would violate our new anti-bailout rules that went in place in 2014. Um, And the idea is that Europe's rules, the conflict is that Europe's rules say that if you're going to do any kind of 
attempt to save the bank, uh, bondholders, uh, equity holders have to take some kind of losses. You have to force losses on the owners of the bank um, well, and, okay, and, the let, people, and the people who own the bank's debts. And so – and. The problem in Italy with that is that a lot of the bondholders of these banks' debts are retail investors, which is really unusual. It's it's kind of a, a symptom of Italy's mom and pop economy that the the people who own bank debt for whatever reason are retiree like random retirees. Well, let's, so this is let, politically let's, toxic. Let's, there. let's be be clear about this. Um, normal mom and pop people own bank debt again in every country in the world. They're called depositors. So the difference between Italian banks and other banks every, in other places is, is that depositors are treated differently. Um, they they are sort of bail-inable bondholders, basically. If you have a bank CD, which is a big thing in um, Italy, then you're, you're a bail-inable um, bondholder rather than a, a depositor who's protected. And so there are huge riots anytime anyone wants to bail in bondholders of Italian banks. So I feel like this is going to get solved, that there is going to be an Italian government bailout and that the Europeans are going to hold their nose and allow it just because the Italian banking system is so unlike, you know, the Dutch banking system or the German banking system, the the laws which were passed to deal with those banking systems um, just don't really apply very well to Italy. Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, coming back to the kind of contradictions inherent in the EU, right? Like they're trying to move towards banking union and, uh, you know, along with monetary union. And that's really hard when you have national banking systems that don't mesh, that don't fundamentally work the same ways. Unless, you know, this wouldn't be a problem in the U.S. when you're if you're comparing banks in New York and Mississippi necessarily. So why did Italy agree to those rules? That's a good question. Their 2014 rules, they probably didn't have a lot of say, is my guess. It's yeah. Like, the, so the people whose whose systems worked with these rules decided Well, I mean, like, rules. it doesn't – there's no such thing as a system which works with the rules. But the idea in general is that bondholders should be bailed in. And in principle, everyone is in favor of this idea. That if you're going to bail out banks, yeah, you hit the stockholders, but you should also hit some of the – um, what's known as loss-absorbing capital, and that the bondholders should be counted among loss-absorbing capital. The problem is that the smaller the bondholders get, the less capacity those people have to absorb losses. Yeah, and I mean, I mean this is – it's a it, – to give you a sense, like there are stories in Italy about people committing suicide because they were bailed in on, on, when, on when, a, when a bank was bailed out. Can we um, go back to the 17% losses? Does this mean like that the actual economy of Italy is sucking and like is it going to get worse? I mean, Italy's economy is not not well. It's, it's not it's not 17% losses, it's 17% non-performing loans. Okay. Um and who knows what the value of those non-performing loans is. I mean, but um, you mentioned what, that what you, you wait what, out. We know it's not zero. The Italian banks are, are valuing their non-performing loans at about 43 cents on the dollar. Um if they try and sell them, they're being offered about 20 cents on the dollar. So that's why they're not selling them. Um Honestly, I feel like 43 cents is probably not a bad um, valuation for them, that most of them are collateralized by some kind of property or other. And here we get back to the whole question of, you know, the UK property market and stuff like that. You know, there is the collateral. There are businesses here. Eventually, the businesses will probably turn around. Some of them will start being able to repay those debts. It's not like just because these loans are not performing that they will never perform. Yeah, but but when you talk about like waiting out this the credit cycle, it sort of gives you the impression that like there's like a sine wave and you're at the hump and it's going to come back down and we're going to be okay. Um I'm just wondering if we have that 
reason to think that this is going to end anytime soon. I mean, for Italy, I don't think there's no. I don't think there's any. I mean, their their unemployment rate last I looked was still in the teens. Um, their and particular their economy has not substantially rebounded from. I mean, is the this crisis. is this like a, a sort of a the first of many? Is this like Portugal and Spain? Are, are there people are worried about that? Yeah, we've already had a major bank failure in Portugal. Um, so yeah, that Southern European banks are have have been in crisis for five years now. And we've had a system of, you know, rolling bailouts. And one of the reasons for these 2014 rules is precisely that the European Union got sick of all of these government bailouts and said, stop bailing out your banks because it's screwing up our internal EU finances in ways that the Germans don't like. But ultimately, when a country's banks get into trouble, that country does need to bail out the banks. You know, we discovered that in the US in 2008. We discovered that in Spain in 2011. We discovered that in Greece in 2012. Like, we've discovered that in so many countries. When push comes to shove, these banks are going to have to get bailed out. It's just part of how a modern economy works. Yeah, it just also it just half measures, you know, kind of kicking the can, half, bail, half bailing them out, sort of saying, okay, well, you know, these banks are okay now, but Italy's are sort of teetering, but we'll let them try to handle it for a while. It doesn't work. I mean, the U.S., the bailout was pretty swift and, you know, was done with overpowering force, and that's why the banks recovered as quickly as they did. So, you know, I think you're seeing Europe's hesitancy come back to haunt it. And the other thing that's really important to mention is precisely because um, there's much less of a securities market in Italy, the economy, which should come back, will only come back if the banks are lending. So if the banks are spending all of their profits recapitalizing themselves and paying back bailout loans instead of actually lending to small and medium-sized businesses, which is what they exist to do, then that's just going to make the Italian economy worse. And this is true in all of Europe, that if you look at bank stock prices in Europe, across Europe, not just in Italy, but in Germany and Holland and France and Spain, they've been plunging since Brexit. And there is an unbelievably strong correlation between bank stock prices and the amount that they lend like a year and a year right. later. So if that happens this time, and the lending goes down in line with the stock prices, that basically means that all of Europe is going to have a Brexit-induced recession, not just the UK. For God's sakes, this is incredibly depressing. The but, third European but, recession in a decade. But I mean, it, it really sounds like the, the real problem here is the economy. The banking system absolutely needs to be healthy to have a, to sustain a good economy, to revive an economy or sustain a good economy. And there are these silly rules that are preventing what needs to happen from happening. I mean, like if this, if these rules really get in the way of everything, like this is going to be and, terrible. And just to just to close the circle on the way all of these things are connected, we have zero interest rates in Europe, which means that the cost to the governments of borrowing yeah. the money to bail out the banks Nil. is zero. Germany. So should, it's just like a principle. I, I've been I've been saying that Germany should literally just be borrowing money and like rocketing bonobos into space, just like spending it however they can at this point. Monkeys Any, or but bonobos do not deserve that. Anything, whatever they just like, just burn money however you. Well, can, how about you give it to get. the Italian small and medium biz, businesses that this, need it? All universal something. basic income. Yeah, anything. Yes. That, yes, anything that might get the economy going at this point. They are being paid. Germany specifically and Switzerland now it seems. Are are being paid to to borrow and and try to save the world, and yeah, I feel or, like the EU really has to go has to go down. Sorry, <laughs> I mean I, I know we're Kathy's we, a Brexiteer. She's 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 a secret. I really leader. I really think, are you a believer? 
I, ugh, I really think that they need to like adjust their thinking if they want to. They want to be attractive to be to their members. They well, can't just be attracted here, to Germany. Here's the thing I'm a little surprised about here because bailing in bondholders is the kind of thing that I would think you would be a fan of because it is sort of creating, you know, it should create a little bit more moral hazard. It should try to make the banking system a little bit safer, if anything, or less risky. That's the idea behind it, partly. So yeah, I, I'm I agree. A little, I, I agree that I think people who like are just, you know, oh, I'm speculating on this bank, low, yeah. like. I'm going to let lend my money to this bank because I think it's going to get bailed out. That's not a great thing, yeah. right? But it's also not a great thing to starve a country of the basic investments that I mean banking systems do things. I'm yeah. not like yeah. a nihilist. And and, <laughs> and and when you look at bank bonds yeah. in virtually all countries in the world, it's people, you know, sophisticated institutional investors making calculations of credit risk and saying, well, there's a certain risk of default and we're going to charge yeah. this much extra yield in order to make up for it. In Italy, it's like, case. I'm putting my money in the bank. Yeah. It's not that kind of thinking, it and it's a, different, it's a different investor base. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. OK, uh, numbers round. I have a number. It's two. It's uh, very simple. Oh, no. I think you took my number. Oh, shit. That's why I said it first. <laughs> it's the number of years. Oh, God damn it, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> that Elizabeth Holmes is not allowed to own a medical facility. Yeah, they've, a blood testing a blood facility. Testing facility. Yeah, they've, they've slaughtered this unicorn. Oh, <laughs> my God. It's, it, it's, I have to say it's like pretty satisfying to someone who actually cares about science. And we've talked about this many times. But Elizabeth Holmes was like basically just pretending that she had invented a new kind of blood test. They did 81. They, they finally did like this criminal investigation. They did 81 tests, patient result tests. All of them were inaccurate. 81 of 81. It was like 0% accuracy. Like statistically speaking, you would think that just By randomly accident. one or yes. two would be correct. Yes. Yeah. 81 out of 81 were wrong. And I'm like, yes, sh- 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 shut that stuff down right yeah. right I, now. I mean, yeah, they've that that was, I mean like the punishment like there there was more. Like that that that's like that was only the beginning of Theranos's punishment. It was like Do you have they, another number coming up into um, it? Like, Jordan, come I, up with <laughs> another number. I'm yeah. This God. is the first time this has ever happened, people. Uh, we've, we've, we've managed to I've, fudge it before. My, my <laughs> number is 276,000, which is it's a jobs report number. So this month, uh, the U.S. economy gained 287,000 jobs. The previous month, the U.S. economy gained 11,000 jobs. Not good. So... My point is that 11,000 is a low number, which is bad, and 287,000 is a high number, which is good. But my bigger point is that what we are finally seeing is the kind of natural randomness in data series that you should be expect that, that we should expect in all natural data series and we shouldn't get alarmed by and that this kind of large fluctuation is what I kind of feel the jobs report series should do and 
for many many years has not been doing it's been it's been suspiciously steady month to month given the margin of error on the numbers which is plus or minus like 150,000 um <laughs> is it really that big yeah that it's huge. that it's that big that's why you should never ever trust like the first the the the, the one that comes out on that friday don't trust it until the version i mean comes. they do do seasonal adjustment so that makes it a little smoother but yeah you're right if it's if the error bars are that big the error, if the error bars are that big you would not expect the numbers to be as smooth as they are and so now finally maybe just randomly we are seeing the kind of month-to-month fluctuation which which just goes to prove that you know stochastic data series are stochastic oh, that's I, so fun, sweet I, 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 <laughs> jesus so i you know what i'm just going to uh, go with uh, i'm gonna since my number was viciously taken away from me. You got to go first, man. I'm just going to go. Yeah, right. I'm just going to go with three as my number and uh, going off of uh, Felix. Um, if you are interested in following the jobs report, my preferred measure is always to look at the three month rolling average on jobs because that just gives you a slightly uh, a slightly more realistic sense of the longer or the midterm trend, which is what people are really interested in. So three. it's always a balancing balance between smoothness and timeliness. That is very true. But I, I feel the rolling average is usually a little bit more indicative of what's I'm, going on. I, I have I have a side gig, un, an unpaid side gig as a weight loss coach. Oh, you do to Wait, a really? guy to a guy with a, um, a, a former guest of Slate Money, actually, who I shall not name, um, who has a Withings scale, one of his lovely Withings scales. And the thing I love about Withings, Withings. is it the brand Withings? It, yeah, it's like wi- Wi-Fi connected bathroom scale. You've mentioned Withings. Oh no, you you've you've rhapsodized about this before. And, on the show. And, I'm and the reason certain. and the reason I like the Withings Wi-Fi connected bathroom scale is is <laughs> that it encourages you to ignore a lot of that stochastic randomness in data series and it will show you your long-term moving average which mm-hmm. is a much better indication of how well you know what what's happening to your weight over time rather than get standing on the scale and getting a single data point yeah um, i have a feeling some people are going to call in and ask you to be their life coach slash weight loss coach <laughs> i i don't I, know yeah don't do that um <laughs> Don't don't do that. Do do write in the email money. The email uh, address is slate money at slate dot com. Don't ask me to be your weight loss coach because honestly, I'm not very good at that. Um, but yeah, give us whatever feedback. Thank you for all of your feedback. By the way, on last week's religion episode, it turns out a lot of you are theologically sophisticated. Who knew? Um, so that was good to learn. Um, and come back next week. Um, I have some sad news. What? Oh, yeah. 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 Moment of silence. Sad. This was the very last Slate Money to be produced by the one and only Audrey Quinn. Audrey, we'll miss you. Audrey, we will miss you. Thank you very much to Audrey for producing this weekend for countless weeks in the past. You've been amazing. Thank you, too, to the executive producers who do much less work. <laughs> they, are, they are Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. That is, they have names. This is what we know about them. Um, they they run this thing called Panoply. You can check out all of the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Um, find us in iTunes, leave reviews there, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.